0: This is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut, and we're here with women worth knowing. Yes, we are, and we started, as you probably know, last week with part one of a fascinating woman, Susan LaFleche, the first Native American, not just woman doctor, but doctor, right? That's right, and just in general, Native American and with a radiant faith in Christ. A radiant faith in Christ. I like that. Mm. And she
1: just graduated from medical college. And even when she was in medical college, she taught Sunday school. She visited the sick. She did her residency in Philadelphia. Mm. And so she finally returns to the Indian Reservation, which her heart was yearning for. And she set up her practice. And she made house calls. And she recalled that her days were whenever her people needed her services. And I quote, my office hours are any and all hours of the day and night. (laughs) So for when she first started, she had to earn credibility with her own people. Interesting. Because her people weren't sure because they liked their their own ways. They're kind of their Indian ways with their herbs. And some of their ways were not healthy. Some mm-hmm. of their ways were hurting them, not helping them. So when she first came and she was suggesting hygiene and especially abstinence from alcohol, her a lot of her people oh, turned against yeah, her. yeah. That would be a hard And there one. was a lot of prejudice. Now, on an Indian reservation, there was not prejudice toward her for being a woman because women were well respected by yeah. the Indians. But the prejudice was against the white ways, as they called Western it. Western medicine. Western yeah. medicine. So her first call was a very old man who was desperately sick and she wasn't sure that she could help him, but she gave him the medicine and kept checking on him. And sure enough, he recovered. And he was telling everybody, oh, Susan LaFleche, she's, she's amazing. Her medicine works. Oh, then there was a little boy and she gave the little boy the medicine, and he was so sick, and he was on death's door. And she wasn't sure what was going to happen with this little boy, but she returned to see how he was doing, and she saw him play with these little boys in the creek and realized he's fine, he's swimming, he's having a great time. So after that, she earned the respect of her whole tribe. Hmm. It was also during this time, her first year of practice, because she had promised the women who were supporting her, they said, "We want to continue to support you as a doctor." So they supported her with five hundred dollars a year. They also got her government support of a hundred, and I think it was less than one hundred and eighty dollars.
0: Would that have been enough for her at that time? Um, no,
1: yeah. but okay. to have a practice, and most <laughs> right. of her patients couldn't pay, right? Right. But to have a practice, and you know, it supported her. Let me say this: just enough,
0: just mm-hmm. enough subsistence, but, okay? Right.
1: But she also, um, you know, lived with her mom part of this time and lived with her sisters. But she had promised them that she wouldn't marry for two years, that she would set up her practice and everything. But she and T.I. were still writing back and forth. And she really hoped that T.I., you know, he was the love of her life, that Mm. they would marry. But it was during this time she found out that T.I. died, and he died of tuberculosis. And it was the same year that she found out somebody else close to her had died. And it was, oh, she found out that her brother-in-law also died, Charles uh, Picot her sister Marguerite's husband. And she, uh, Marguerite had met Charles Pocote at Hampton, and she had met T.I., and they were all very close. And so it just absolutely devastated her. Oh, yeah. And so... It was partially that, and in 1892, she had that neck pain and that head pain and back pain, and it was so devastating that she became bedridden for several weeks, and she just hated it because she wanted to continue to serve her people. And as she was recovering, her mother fell gravely ill, and Susan had to nurse her mother and herself both back to health. So Susan was not only interested in treating illnesses but also in the prevention, and she taught classes on essential hygiene and disease prevention. And she also would teach Sunday nights at the Presbyterian Church. She would teach Sunday school, and they needed her services um, to translate to the different Indians, and because she spoke five languages, um, she could translate. But they said that when she told Bible stories, she would come alive, and she told them with such passion and enthusiasm that even the missionaries kind of would stand back and go, oh, my goodness. (laughs) They just came alive. Her favorite thing was to teach children, and she would have— Sometimes the evening service is just for children, and she loved to sit with them and read books to them. And whenever she wasn't nursing a patient, she would spend time with the children. Well, she was making house calls, and sometimes she'd have to rent a team of horses, and that was super expensive. So she ended up with her own money buying her own team of of horses and a carriage so she could make house calls. And at times, she would go out in temperatures that were 20 degrees below zero, oh. and she would throw a blanket around her and take her team of horses because she wanted to be there for anybody who needed help. So she opened up her own office, and she hated drinking and smoking. I felt it was really bad for everyone's health, but she would allow the old men to smoke their peace pipes in her <laughs> office, but if they were young men, she would scold them and send them outside. <laughs> and sometimes in her work she had to actually spend the night at different people's houses in order to, you know, help them. So get committed, better. my she, goodness. Yes, she was committed. And sh- she said that her faith in God was strengthened by her ministering to sick people. In 1894 she met and married Henry Picott. He was a Suez Indian from Yankton Agency who had previously worked in the Wild West Circus. And in the Wild (laughs) West Circus, and this is so sad, it was really humiliating what he did. He had to pretend to be a savage Indian, and they would throw him raw food that he would take a bite out of. And if people, you know, walked by him, he would growl at them and— you know, yeah. pretend to act That's aggressive. So, so one day this um, woman walked up to him and she said, I can tell you're sophisticated. You know, you're not fooling me. You know, how long have you been sophisticated? He said, oh, three weeks since they caught me, thinking that would be like a great answer to say. Instead, he got fired from the circus.
0: Oh, my God! So
1: he was actually um, Marguerite's brother-in-law, the brother of Charles Picot. And he had chosen to go with the circus and make money rather than— um, Continuous education. But again, she fell madly in love Mm -hmm. with Henry. Henry was actually married before. And little is known about that first marriage. But probably because he was with the circus, it didn't work out. Yeah. Whatever. So uh, Susan and Henry ended up having two sons, Carl— who later would serve in World War II with honors and retired in El Cajon, California. Isn't that interesting? Oh, that's close by. So close. So her relatives are somewhere in (laughs) California. And then she had a son named Pierre who remained on the Omaha reservation. But Henry was known to drink every once in a while. And he also had tuberculosis, but again, it was in remission. And as long as he didn't drink, he did well. But when he drank, it would flare up. up. Mm -hmm. But it was not unusual uh, for Susan to make house calls accompanied by her sons. Uh, Sometimes if Henry was working or too busy, she would just put them in the back of the carriage and take them with her to some of her house calls. She was a devoted mother and doctor. And Women were well-respected, again, in the um, Indian culture, so her practice and the care of people and her sons was well-regarded. She also, at this time, she would put a lamp in her window of her house to show that she was available, night or day. If anyone needed help, they could come. And I think I mentioned this before, but she didn't care if you were white or if you were Indian. She would treat you. According to Susan, Henry was a good man until he drank. Henry succumbed to alcoholism, which aggravated his tuberculosis and led to an early death in 1905. After this, Susan became even more ardent in her uh, prohibitionist, and she went to Washington, D.C. as a delegate, encouraging Congress to outlaw the sale of liquor on Indian reservations. At the same time, she went back to Hampton, and she spoke at her, you know, alma mater, And she said this, I know that I shall be unpopular with my people because they will misconstrue my efforts, but this is nothing just so I can help them for their own good. Susan also wrote of the devastating effects of alcohol, how it turned peaceful men into brawlers and made the reservation dangerous. Intemperance increased. Men, women, and children drank. This was especially after father died. Men and women died from alcoholism, and little children were seen reeling on the streets of the town. Drunken brawls in which men killed occurred, and a person's life was not considered
0: safe. This is the perfect time for her to start pushing this because prohibition was becoming more popular everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that idea. So, Susan felt like the Omaha
1: Reservation needed a hospital. So, she moved into the Presbyterian boarding house and Uh, moved her practice there and was the doctor in residency of the children and the staff at the Presbyterian Mission House and also would treat other people. And she saved every bit of money and she purchased property in Walthill, Nebraska. And first she built her house and then her own three-story home, which she also put her office in the front of it. And then she built a hospital in 19... 13 with the funds she raised. She raised all the funds herself. And her hospital continued until 1940 when it became a museum. And it's still a museum, still standing there. In fact, I watched a YouTube special actually on Amazon Prime. I watched a special on Susan LaFleche and it showed her hospital. And Mm. it was two other women doctors who were there and going through it and talking about what a groundbreaker she was. But sometime after this, Susan began struggling with tremendous pain in her ears and cheekbones, her back. Remember how she had had that oh, yeah, before?
0: yeah,
1: And she had surgery, and the doctors discovered that she had bone cancer, and this bone cancer had been eating away at the bones in her ears and in her face. Wow, this whole time, all those years. Wow. All those years. Mm-hmm. So um, her brother-in-law contacted Marie Curie, who— um, had just you'll know, come up with all of these advances against cancer and marie curie sent a special package of radium pills from paris however by the time they arrived susan was too sick to swallow mm-hmm. and she died september 18 1915 at only 50 years old wow. sad so um some felt that she was too pushy with her christianity Um, because she was also not only against the um, she stood firmly against the peyote uh, religion because the peyote religion I don't know if you know this is based on the peyote uh, cactus which has um, psychedelic effects
0: which yeah,
1: like a drug basically Mm -hmm. right and she was also against the mescal bean that people would use again for psychic effects and she was definitely a prohibitionist and some felt like you know they didn't like that her prohibitionism. Um, but some of the quotes that she has here's just one that I really loved. From the outset, the work of an Indian girl is plain before her. We who are educated have to be pioneers of the Indian civilization. We have to prepare our people to live in the white man's way, to use the white man's books, and to use his laws. if he will only give them to us. The shores of success can only be reached by crossing the bridge of faith. Then later she would say of her medical practice, I'm not accomplishing miracles, but I'm beginning to see some of the results of better hygiene and health habits, and we're losing fewer babies and fewer cases to infection. So, um, she was just this amazing, amazing woman. Groundbreaker. Her one sister lived until, I think it was 1950, it was uh, Marguerite. The rest of her
0: sisters died before her. You know, that that is kind of interesting, just um, like— like you're saying about, you know, people thinking she was harsh with her prohibition and all of that. But we've talked about this before with the whole prohibition era. You know, the point was care and compassion and concern for these people. Like, you know, bettering their lives so the men aren't, so the men aren't abusing the women and kids. And so it was all with a heart of compassion. And and again,
1: she saw sweet tempered Indians. She would write about it because she journaled, which was amazing. And she also would, she was a prolific writer. She wrote to Washington, D.C. and Mm. she wrote to those women who supported her. And she loved, uh, she would write very newsy letters. Um, And so from those letters, which are at the museum and from her journal, um, you see her ardent faith. In fact, that's why a lot of the quotes, they don't quote on Google because they were so filled with um, scriptures and right. Bible stories. And she was just this ardent mm. Christian. Love but it. I want to talk about somebody else who was an ardent Christian. Oh, yes, the bonus. <laughs> yes. So um, in college, was Susan LaFleche was the first Japanese woman to receive a Western medical degree from the U.S. And she was only the second female doctor ever in Japan. Wow. And her name was Keiko Okimi. Okay. And I don't know about Okimi, but I know how to say Keiko. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, she, you know, was born in Japan, and she got married. She graduated from a girls' school in Japan, and she taught English. At this school, that was her job. At this school that she graduated from, and she married another teacher at 25. And they were both ardent Christians, and they were teaching at a Christian school. So, um, her husband really encouraged her. He said, "You're so smart, and there's no medical help for women. You really ought to become a doctor." And so, the the church supported her to go to the United States and study at the. Medical College of Pennsylvania. Oh, there it is again. So she went and she got her degree. She did her residency Mm -hmm. and she returned to Japan and she practiced gynecology at, um, I think it's pronounced, Haiki University School of Medicine. And she was a tremendous doctor and helping, you know, as many women as would come to her. But the Emperor um, Maji came to the hospital and he you know greeted all the doctors but he would not greet her at all mm. in fact he treated her as if she didn't exist as if she was a shame to women and a shame to the hospital and that culture was so full of honor shame Hmm? that she had to resign from the hospital so that the hospital would not be shamed. So the hospital could keep its honor and the other doctors could keep their honor. She had to resign from the hospital. So she opened her own medical practice and she treated mainly tuberculosis and women's issues. But later she closed the practice. It was open for nine years, but women did not want to be outed going to another woman doctor because— On her shame again? On her shame. So she had very few who really recognized how groundbreaking what she was doing. And, you know, again, the women would not go to male doctors. That was a shame. But they they wouldn't even go to her. So she ended up, after nine years, closing the clinic, and she became the vice principal of a girls' junior and senior high school. And there she would teach, you know, anatomy and chemistry and some of the things that she learned. And she would really encourage the girls, go further, go higher. You're so intelligent. Mm. She was a devout Christian, and she participated in missionary work all over uh, Japan, And she also trained nurses um, at Japan's largest hospital. So even though she was ashamed, she was allowed to teach and train these nurses. And again, she trained them in hygiene and she trained them in simple anatomy and how to help patients. So she ended up dying of a breast cancer. And she also was young, like Mm, Susan LaFleche. They were both young when they died, but both of them ardent Christians. You know, sometimes life seems to just, you know, come on the scene and then flicker out, but it's done so much good. I forgot to tell you this, that Susan LaFleche was responsible for 1,400 miles all around in every direction, and uh, one year she treated 618 patients through house calls. Oh Not even counting the patients that came to her office, so she quite was quite a circuit. She was so so busy, and of course, as we said before, she had to do surgery. Mm-hmm. She had to uh, administer pharmaceuticals, which is that's where you use your chemistry, uh, right. figuring out the milligrams, the weight, right, the mixtures, the mixtures, yeah. and she had to do a lot of her own. Um, pharmaceutics, yeah. you know, yeah. and they said that when you went into her office, it looked like a pharmacy or like a, a drugstore because she would have all her compounds up mm-hmm. on the shelf. So she'd have to mix the compounds herself. Mm-hmm. And that's where Gosh. her chemistry came in. So, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, she's delivering babies. She's teaching hygiene. She's teaching Sunday school, the Bible stories. She's interpreting. Uh, she's representing her People and temperance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she's doing all those things, and, and you know, wow. these women are amazing.
0: Yeah, and even for uh, Okimi as well. Like, yes. it, it's kind of interesting that she wasn't able to do as much, but she was um, educating like the the next generation she was. of nurses who would come up, and you know, just the willingness to pioneer mm-hmm. and trailblaze, even if you don't get credit for it or if you don't see all the results of of your <laughs> efforts. And
1: one of these. The commonness of these two women is they were both very brilliant and they both received um, pushback. Yeah. A lot of pushback. And I, you know, I think about Jesus, it says that he came into his own um, and they rejected him. And, you know, when he went to Nazareth, they rejected him. And Susan's greatest pushback was from her own people. In fact, they all told her, We're going to vote for prohibition. We're going to vote for prohibition. And when it came to the vote, they voted um, against prohibition. Wow, they backed out. They backed out. And it was because these whiskey salesmen had come in. And, and just as Susan predicted, when the Indians were allowed, um, when they were uh, the property was given to them in full, they were cheated out of their property. In fact, one man had gotten drunk and found out that he'd signed away all his property when oh. he was drunk and just the naivety because they either didn't speak English because they didn't learn it and that was something else that she pushed for keep our native language but learn English yeah got so you won't be taken advantage of you won't be taken advantage of yeah and she and her sister bright eyes really worked to preserve Indian rights in fact she was always rallying on Washington to preserve the rights of Indians and also you know she would say we're We're Christians. You know, protect us. And she felt like alcohol was the white man's bane
0: and the white man's weapon. Right. Kind of like opium in China. Mm -hmm. You know, how they were able to use that to, yeah, Mm -hmm. really weaken the people Mm -hmm. and make them vulnerable. That's, yeah.
1: In in another— in another series, when we kind of talk about Christian activists, and we've talked about a few of them. Some of them, yeah. Yes. Um, I really want to talk about Bright Eyes because she also, uh, her sister was also an ardent Christian, but really fought for the rights of the Indians. Um, and against, you know, I think we think of the, the government of the United States as Christians, and the Presbyterians didn't. <laughs> they were like, you know, there's some corruption on our government, and so we have to pray these things down, and we have to work for the evangelism. Of Mm. of people and therefore protect them. And so all of this is so important. I think when we Christianize government, we we do it a disservice. Government is is not Christian. The church (laughs) is Christian. The church is supposed to be the light in the world. Set apart. No, Jesus didn't say the government, you are the light of the world. He couldn't. It was Rome. (laughs) And he couldn't even say that to the Israeli government at the time because mm-hmm. the religious elite were corrupt but it was you know and I love these Presbyterians these ardent Presbyterians yeah. who were missionaries um, it was interesting because the Presbyterian school um, that she went to in New Jersey
0: later became a Quaker school of course <laughs> so, the, Quakers, the, Quakers, the Quakers, the Presbyterians, Presbyterians the Methodists mm-hmm. they were all very active in, you know and like you said they weren't connected to the government they're like no no Jesus mm-hmm. is separate from mm-hmm. all of that. And I love that. I think that's so important people. that we keep the, you know— I. I think that we thought Thomas
1: Jefferson at one point did us a disservice by separating church and state. But when you look at how liberal the church comes when it joins with government or how dangerous it becomes often, you
0: realize, wow, thank you, Lord. Well, yeah, and his original intention was to keep the state from being involved in the church. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That's what he was trying to do. Because he had seen that abuse in England
1: or France or some of these other nations and, you know, he said, this is not going to happen
0: in the United States. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and just even and circling back, like you were saying, just, uh, you know, the, just the pressures. We've seen this over and over with these gals, like all of the oppression they faced, like you said, not only from others outside, but from their own. It's really interesting, even just uh, for, you know, Keiko Okimi to have to deal with uh, the whole um, honor-shame Shame. notion. And that's something that I've just been, you know, realizing lately. Um, you know, i heard a I think a missions session where they said that, uh, 90% of the world is honor, shame culture. And for the right. West, we don't understand that, no. but what a huge thing that was like, what huge pressure that mm-hmm. was from the culture. I mean, that's a, that's a really a big deal. It's not just like a, Oh, I'm just kind of getting embarrassed here. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's a really big deal. And so she really had to conquer a lot of odds. It, she did. She did. Um, both of these women, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, Susan LaFleche too,
1: because, um, She represented Indians, and she represented—she felt very strongly, even in school, that she was representing her tribe, the Omaha tribe, and she felt like she was representing the Christian Omaha tribe. Like, I'm representing the fact that we are ardent Christians. And when Joseph LaFleche, Iron Chief, was the—Iron Eye was the chief— He really pushed Christianity. He really felt like Christianity exalted the Omaha people. Absolutely. And she felt too that God exalted the Omaha people, and the peyote religion was very dangerous. In fact, the peyote religion was misunderstood by many of the soldiers uh, by the United States government and was often came under persecution and even uh, massacre because they would. Uh, they would take these mescal, these psychedelic beans, yeah. and they would do these crazy dances, which they said were peace dances, but they looked so aggressive. And they would even turn on each other when they were under these psychedelics right. and Right yeah. or the peyote cactus, which had psychedelic effects too. And so she saw that and she... She really stood against the peyote religion. You know, it's interesting because I read one thing that said, oh, at the end, she embraced it. She never, Mm. ever, ever, ever—I read two other books. She never embraced it. And in her journals and in her letters, you find how ardently she resisted it. She said, this is not uh, the Omaha ways. This is not the ancient ways. This is not the way of our ancestors. You know, don't think it is. And she petitioned against the mescal beans and the— Coyote, uh, uh cactus—you mm-hmm. know these practices. Um, she she
0: would beg her people not to, you know. So, I mean, I interesting, love that. Yes. yeah, because they, they yeah, because they knew like Christianity, like brings dignity, you mm-hmm. know, to our humanity and elevates, like you were saying. But she could see that these other things were just going to bring them down. (laughs) And so there was just that heart of compassion always with her Christian faith. I love that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I would love to go back to see that hospital
1: someday. (laughs) You know, as we're studying these different women and where they've come from and, you know, that we're learning that a couple weeks ago I was talking about how one of the women we looked at, her house is actually on the Freedom Trail. Yeah, that's right. uh, Yeah, yeah. I think it's Rebecca... Rebecca not, Cole? Not Rebecca Cole. The other Rebecca. <laughs> Rebecca, um, I can't remember her last name, but she's on the Freedom Trail in Boston. I thought, oh, I want to do an East Coast
0: tour. Yeah, to stopping in Nebraska <laughs>
1: and seeing these women. Uh, which brings up this. You know, we call this Women Worth Knowing. And we believe that every ardent Christian woman is a woman worth knowing. Absolutely. And God is working in all of our lives in incredible and majestic ways. We wanna hear your story or maybe the story of somebody you know, mother, mentor. Susan LaFleche uh, would talk about how Susan Kinney was one of her mentors and one of uh, the most amazing people that she met. And Also, the Dr. Uh, Waldron was just such an inspiration to her. So who's been an inspiration to you? We would like you to let us know. And then again, whatever venue that you listen to this podcast, would you please like us? Because that encourages us and helps us (laughs) to, you know get more stories for you.
0: That's true. Definitely. So Jasmine, where do they send these stories Yeah, to? if you want to contact us, you can ask us questions or contact us yes, about we'd anything like as well. Questions. We'd, we'd love that too. Um, the email address is wwk at cccm.com, which stands for Women Worth Knowing, of course.
1: And also um Jasmine posts the books that we use and the sources that we yep. use. So if you're interested in maybe researching some of these women in depth, that like get just piques your curiosity. Like
0: I know they piqued ours. That's yeah, why we absolutely. did absolutely Go yeah. ahead. Please and find I, us. You can go mm-hmm. to also the women.cccm.com website, and then you'll see a link as well to find all of those resources. Because we're scratching the surface on most of these. Yes, you we know? are. There's so many more. <laughs> you want to read your own. On That's your right.
1: Own. <laughs> all right. So this is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine saying until next time with another woman worth knowing. <laughs> bye. bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk@cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends.